Your attention, please. Paul and Alex are required to proceed to the gate immediately. What? No way. What is happening here? This is the last call for the Layovers podcast. Really? Come on, man. This is our thing. We got this. Oh, yeah. And we made it. Of course, geeks. Flight 632 Itami uh, to Osaka International Airport. <laughs> yes, and there's a lovely little story behind that name because it's completely counterintuitive, but perhaps we'll get to that a little bit later. Yeah, I haven't actually been. So, guys, it's obviously in Japan. You know that we've both been in Japan recently. Uh, there's so many airports in just that little bit of piece of land around there. there are. I've only been to the big KIX, which we've already covered. I'm very curious to learn about Itami. So, we've been to Japan. How did you get to Japan? I flew uh, on All Nippon Airways, ANA, from London, which was which was a lovely experience. Triple seven three hundred in business class, and it was very, very good, very good. It's a long way. You forget. Fortunately, that direction, London to Haneda, is the night flight, so you can try and sleep. But coming back, it's a day True. flight, and it's just even in the most comfortable seat, you're like, okay, I'm super ready for this to be over. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, interestingly, you probably took the exact same flights I had taken in January 2016 when we, for the first time, were both in Japan together. Yes. I mean, December, we were not exactly together, but we actually saw each other. So people were like, guys, you're together, but you're not recording? No, we were not. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> we had a good beer, though. And, we had, yeah, we had a, a lot of fun food. out there. It's a, it's a, I adore Japan, and it was nice to be able to spend some time over there. We were actually over there for 10 days, and we bounced around the country quite a lot, but it was a very pleasant experience getting over there. I don't know what the style of seat is called where it was one two one, and you have along the window this sort of slightly staggered seat arrangement where one person's seat is slightly more against the aisle than the window, and then the person behind them is against the window with space towards aisle and vice versa. And it's so that when you extend your bed, your feet has somewhere to go. Yeah. So you yeah. go and, you know, your feet go into the space where, you know, they have between the window or the aisle. Basically, it's where the little table sits. It's either on your left or on your right. Yeah. Either you're directly on the window, which I slightly more privacy. So which one did you have? I was in the what is technically the window. But uh, on the way over, I, I was right up against the window. On the way back, I was in a bulkhead up against the aisle, but I could still very easily see out of the window. Well, you know what? I, I, I mean, I don't have time to check that now, but I think I've actually done the exact same thing <laughs> when I flew a year and a half ago. That's funny. So, yeah. So, so how did you like the seat? I thought it was very comfortable. Yeah, I thought it was nice. The decor is interesting. It's it's not ostentatious like an Emirates or a, even a Cathay, but it is very functional. It's very comfortable. And I remember when we were taxiing out, you sent me a message saying, oh, by the way, when you take off, try and pull the the tray table out. And I was like, okay, that's a slightly <laughs> weird thing to ask, but I did it anyway. And instead of coming out of the armrest or something to your side and kind of coming up and then across you, the table is in front of you and slides towards you on what I found out were incredibly efficient rails. So, and, you know, when you're when you're you know taken off and you're at a pretty steep angle, I opened up the the latches to keep the trace slowed, and it flew back towards me at, at a, quite an alarming rate. But uh, so that caught me by surprise, and I can see why you said that because it it was pretty pretty uh, not aggressive. That's not the right word. But other than that, the seat was very comfortable. 
especially if you're in the window seat that's closer to the window, you do feel like you have a lot of privacy. Mm-hmm. The screen is nice and big. The IFE is, is is fine. And you have all the bells and whistles, you know, power outlets. Yeah, and- yeah. actually, I, I think I had made the research back then when I talked about that seat. But I think it's a Japanese design. It's not one of the big uh, seat makers. That's their own uh, ANA design. Yeah, I, I don't think I'd ever, ever seen anything like it. I mean, Emirates and Business Class have that staggered design, but it doesn't look like this. It uses the Panasonic IFE, I think, and they have the camera, but they don't turn it on until at least 10,000 feet, which I thought was kind of interesting. I didn't didn't realize that. Yeah. Okay. Because when I got on the plane, I thought I was having a look around the IFE and I thought, oh, I I love the cameras. I was spoiled on them the last couple of flights. And I didn't see it and I was disappointed. And then I was playing around later on in the flight and there it was. And I, I, I made a note of that and looked on the way in. And sure enough, as we were descending at 10,000 feet, that option disappeared. Oh, wow. Interesting. I don't know what the reason is. I'm sure they have their reason. But uh, yeah, I thought the seat was good. The food was excellent. I was about to ask you, did, what did you choose, Western or Japanese? I had Japanese on the way there and Western on the way back because I wanted to try both. Yeah. They were outstanding. They were they were delicious. The wines were good. But of course, it was the service that really just makes them. They're, they're, they're a five-star airline and one of only a handful of Skytrax five-star airlines. And it's clearly the service that got them that. It's extraordinary. It's attentive. It's, it's formal without being stuffy. The anticipated needs. I was just really impressed. I was really impressed with that whole experience. But I also got to do a couple of domestic flights as well, which I'd never done before in Japan. Also ANA? Also ANA. One of them was into the airport of this episode. Pardon me, out of that airport. And then we flew from Fukuoka to back to Haneda in a 767. They were great as well. Just a really good airline, unbelievably consistent service. Flying in Japan is a joy. <laughs> I know. There's right? a little. There's a few little idiosyncrasies. The uh, number of paper they give you is especially for domestic flights. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah, ha- exactly, you, you yeah. get five or six sheets of paper before you actually get on the airplane. One is the boarding pass. One is your gate. One is your seat. One is your luggage tag if you have one. One is a usually like a, a se- map and of a, the terminal. At uh, Fukuoka, there was a security clearance. Like you'd been through security. Hang on Indeed. to this yep, piece of true. paper, which they mm-hmm. then either scan or take away from you when you board. I can't remember, but. When we flew from Fukuoka back to Tokyo, that was a 767 full flight. And we didn't start boarding until about 20 minutes before we were due to push back. And I thought, we're never going to leave on time. But sure you enough, did. bang on time, we left. Everyone sat down, buckled in, shut up. <laughs> it was just... <laughs> Uh, you know, I used to travel quite extensively domestic, but the, the region you visited, I've usually went with a Shinkansen because I'm also, unbeknownst to maybe people are listening, I'm also a big fan of, of trains, so I would always take the train. But I've done my share of ANA. I've done also, of course, uh, JAL and Starflyer, which I adore. But what was the, the, the one that uh, that was about to buy the 380s? Skymark. Uh, I did Skymark as well to, uh, to the north of Japan. The one thing that always struck me at how orderly everything was yes. and how no one was trying to, you know, take a luggage that was oversized into the cabin and then, of course, stuck the whole thing. And because that's what usually gets the planes late is that if you have and, and I get it, you know, some some people will answer and I'm probably sure I'm going to get some Twitter replies that, oh, you know what, because, of course, the airlines now ask you to pay for the privilege of putting the hole. Mm. So I get it. Fine. But 
in the Japan, it's very orderly and it's so stress free. Yeah, everybody boarded when they were supposed to board. There was no pushing and shoving. Everybody put their stuff in their overhead bin. They didn't, like you said, they, they hardly brought anything on board. It was just a joy. And that we did a 737 800 from Itami to Kumamoto. And then, like I said, a 763 to back to Tokyo from Fukuoka. And they were just, they were on time. They were easy. They had. Uh, streaming Wi-Fi and IFE on oh, both streaming. of those flights, oh. yeah, and live TV as well on the streaming oh, wow. devices. So that that was it was great, lovely service and food, just a joy. This is what it should be like. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say it shows that I've lived in Japan ten years ago because streaming IFE was something out of science fiction back then. Yeah, true, true. <laughs> well, so I mean, we'll we'll talk, of course, again about. Uh, both in and other airports later, but probably either because we've done a lot of Japanese airports, so probably in 2018, we'll get to go to some of the other airports, including Fukuoka, which again, I haven't done. I've done, you know, the train station. Yeah, we should actually do an episode where I talk about a train station. <laughs> we, did, we did. We did take a few uh, Shinkansen with our mutual friend, Joseph, and that was another great experience as well. But yeah, that's something else. Transport in that country is just a joy. Yeah, it is, right? It's stress-free and it's everything is on time. Not everything is always perfectly on time. Let's not, again, exaggerate. But you know that they're going to make everything in their power to make you get a connection, for instance. Yes. I've already told the story many times, so I'm not going to go into how what happened to me in in uh, KIX or the other uh, airport in Osaka once, and which is, is the complete opposite of sometimes traveling domestic in the US or even sometimes in Europe when you're like, oh, oops, you know, like 20 minutes late, I'm going to miss my connection. Yeah. Nobody will take care of me or even think about no, me. No, no, absolutely. <laughs> Since you mentioned the boarding, have you seen that uh, BA is introducing uh, boarding with numbers like in the US? They are, and it's based on how much you paid for your ticket, which is <laughs> which has riled a lot of people. I've seen both, right? Of course, most people are right up say, you know, it's a walk of shame if you're the last one, meaning that you're poor. I, I get all these arguments. And I've seen also other people saying, well, you know what? Of course, if you pay like five times the price that I paid, well, it's normal that you be. The, the one thing I appreciate in having an order like this, it's at least from the UK when you have seemingly 80% of the people who have status. Yeah. It seems that everyone is in a priority lane. And then they even have to announce, okay, in the priority lane, please only the passengers who are in Club Europe or Club World or in Emerald or Gold come first and then it becomes a whole mess. Something had to be done in terms of how do boarding because BA has never been, uh, you know, in a country, and I'm a foreigner in this country, but in a country that is known for its queuing, mm. it's always been for me like staggeringly crazy. Yeah, it, it is. And I think this is fine as long as they stick to it and they... Correct. Uh, what I found in a lot of places is that BA fly into is that the rules that are applied in at Heathrow or Paris or LA or Tokyo or Hong Kong will all be different. Yeah. And that's yeah. infuriating, especially if you're a frequent traveler with them. In LA, a gold card does not get you priority boarding. Actually, you know what? That's super interesting that you mentioned that. When I was traveling with Cathay Pacific, they have a line for first, you first exist. They have a line for business class, sometimes premium economy and coach. And on top of these, they have like what kind of status you can access, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Cafe Pacific is a bit confusing, I found, and maybe you've had this experience if you heard about it, or maybe any one of you guys have seen it, is that I was in Hong Kong. I was not in first, clearly. I was in, in business class going to Japan, commuting through Hong Kong airport. What a pleasure, as always. And there's a sign that says first, an emerald. And the next sign says business, an emerald. And below emerald is, I don't remember, the, sapphire? the second. Sapphire, exactly. So 
I'm emerald because I'm gold on BA, which translates into emerald in one world. And I'm like, so can I choose which line can I go in? So, you know, ah. being maybe too Swiss, I, uh, I hesitated for a while and I said, you know what, what the heck with it. I'm just going to go on the line for first class and I'm going to see what they tell me. They saw Emerald and, and I just went through. But it's interesting that it was in terms of the user experience, I wasn't sure which line I was supposed to choose. Uh, was it maybe a choice or was it on purpose? I don't know. Anyway, interesting to that see is how something. Yeah. yeah, I don't think it is still to this day, nobody has cracked the ultimate boarding algorithm for efficiency and placating those quote-unquote valuable customers and passengers. So we'll see how this plays out with BA or how long it lasts. I don't know when they're supposed to be implementing it. I'm due to fly to Luxembourg very early tomorrow morning, so I'll see if they've actually implemented out of T5. The other thing that is interesting is to see how in uh, Arithro they've started putting these uh, automatic gates to board. So basically you scan your own boarding pass and you open but they seem That's to true. be randomly not always so not all the gates have them yet and also uh it seems to not been always in use and it seems that people who are in priority boarding which again sometimes feels like it's 80% of the plane don't have to use them so it's uh because for instance uh Lufthansa it's only gold and above so hon which can go through the priority boarding those people, and usually that's you know less than twenty percent of the plane, will have a person scanning and welcoming to the flight. And then general boarding has gates. Simply people just scan the door opens and they go through. And of course, there's a person in case there's an issue. But it seems that for BA, they haven't really decided what they want to do. They've installed these gates, but they're not. I mean, maybe you'll tell us in the next episode what happens to you tomorrow to Luxembourg to see what happened there. Yeah, it, I'm, I'm interested to see. I mean, BA had a serious strategy change, it seems, and they seem to be going very um, middle of the road, very United Airlines, very American Airlines. Just, and, you know, it is what it is, but this is another example of that. I, I don't see this as a trying to get people on faster. This just seems a just another move to that part of the market, which they seemed okay with occupying. But yeah, if it happens tomorrow or in the next couple of flights I have before the end of the year with BA out of T5, I'll let you know if it actually happens. Yeah, please. Uh, also, you flew ANA, so you flew from Terminal 2. You hadn't flown from Terminal no, 2 before? No, I, I had never flown from Terminal 2 before. How was that? I was I, nice. It's nice and big and bright and airy. And we... we we were working with uh, ANA on a partner project, and so we got we went in and had a meeting in the United First Class Lounge, which was which was lovely and very aviation and yeah, yeah, airline is, right? nostalgic, you know, themed and, and decorated. So that was it's it's, nice. a, it's a fantastic lounge, guys. It's located at Terminal Two B, so the B gates of Terminal Two, which takes. Three hours to walk through because they have it's still disconvoluted, but yeah, it's, it's a wonderful. I'm flying. Oh my god, I'm going to talk about that soon, guys. I'm flying United uh, next week to to New York. <laughs> yeah, I'm flying United. Me, Paul, I'm flying United. Uh, after yeah, all I the, said. there's pigs flying all over the place. Right now. <laughs> the one thing I've said it many times that lounge at uh, Terminal Two B at Ethro, and apparently other lounges they've been revamping around the world are very, very good. And this one is not only very good, but as you say, they have pictures of old planes, of old mm. aprons, and it is re- that's lovely. Yeah, Let's it, give them it was that. nice. The food was nice. The service was nice. We weren't there for very long, but it was... Uh... So did you learn anything about ANA? Yeah, I did. And we talked about this in the last episode. 
I was still struggle to 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 reconcile in my own mind this strange policy that Emirates have about demanding the pillows and blankets and headphones up to an hour before the flight arrives at its destination. I just think that that's weird. And we speculated on this last episode that it might be because they need to turn the plane around quickly on the other end, or they're trying to save some time or some money or something. But as an aside of this project with ANA, I learned that the crew stay on board for much, much longer after the flight has landed to clean it. Oh, wow, themselves. Yeah. So they have a proper deep clean crew come in and restock everything and, and, and vacuum and do all that stuff. But they will help prepare for that process. There's no give me your blanket or headphones or anything like that. They, they all stay as a team and prepare the aircraft for the incoming crew and for the cleaning crew, which I thought was very, very impressive at a corporate culture level and at an operational level. I was, I was just impressed by that. It would be nice to compare with the policies. Of course, uh, this flight, it's not a quick turnaround. They don't have uh, five flights a day going to Tokyo, so they have a little bit more time. It would be still interesting to know what are the policies of many of the other companies, both at the hub airport and at non-hub airports or destinations, to see how they operate. Uh, it, it doesn't surprise me, coming from a Japanese airline, that, that they would actually do this and that they would ask the crew to do that. I would be interested, maybe some, because I know that we have some of people working in airlines listening to us. What's the policy? And I'm, of course, low cost might be totally different, but like in traditional airlines, would they stay? Would they ask the crew to stay and help clean yeah. the aircraft? I don't know, to be honest. I don't think it's like a lot of you know, heavy lifting or scrubbing, you know, on their knees or anything like that. It's just removing it, the, the blankets yeah, and, yeah, you know, the basics. Absolutely. Stuff. Like, what can we do between now and when the cleaning crew arrive to, because they weren't actually on the ground that we, we were standing at the gate when our inbound aircraft arrived. So there wasn't a whole heap of time oh, okay. on the ground. Okay. I was just impressed with that airline all around. And last question about ANA. Have you been able to fly any of the Star Wars plane? No, sadly not. Uh, the one, I have a model of it on my desk right here. The R2-D2 <laughs> Dreamliner flies to Paris, but it does not fly to London uh, yet. I don't think they have any plans to either. And then there's a 777, which I believe is used on domestic routes. To, I didn't even I see any, I don't think. I think it's a 767 in domestic, but I'm not sure. Maybe you're right, because I know they have... Two international, maybe even two domestic. I'm not sure. They've increased these uh, the, the, the numbers. I've never flown them. You remember, actually, in January 2016, <laughs> yeah. again, I was supposed to fly back to Paris because I thought I would grab it. And then I realized it had already left the airport. Thus, I reverted back to the 777 to London, which is higher capacity. So I guess that's why they fly them to London. Again. Yeah. Still, uh, I mean, I'd love to yeah. one day. <laughs> well, we have other chances to go to Japan, you know. Yeah, uh, keep, I'm always keep, looking for excuses. And keep that uh, partnership uh, as long as you can with ANA so maybe they can actually do something for you. Um, interestingly, when I was looking for my flights to go to, to Japan, I was looking at BA as well to fly uh, to Haneda. And it said when I was about not to book, but, you know, you go further into the booking to see a little bit of the seat map, etc. Yeah. It says... Um, uh, we are in the process of securing Japanese government approval for BA4608 and BA4609, which is basically London, Haneda, Haneda, uh, Heathrow. If these are not granted in time for your flight, we will notify you and 
issue a full refund. I was like, would I actually try to book a flight? And then, oops, sorry, guys, we didn't get the landing rights, thus we're refunding, which is fine, but I still don't have a flight, yeah. which is why I didn't take I them. think they're, from my limited understanding of, of starting new routes, I think they're legally obligated to put that message as a as a CYA, as it were. The chances of them not getting approval for it and putting it out for sale are pretty pretty slim. For me, I would have expected, you know, that they would not put it for sale until they would actually get the full, you know, uh, approval. But yeah, probably you're right. The, the risk was limited. Anyway, I wanted to land in Narita. I know that's very strange, guys. So Haneda has been in the past. Yeah, everybody, all of our friends in Japan were like, why did he do that? <laughs> because for me, when I was living there, landing in Japan from abroad, uh, besides maybe China or South Korea, was clearly uh, Narita. There was no other way. Uh, the, the move to Haneda hadn't really started. So I have this kind of weird, stupid, like, you know, symbolism. And I wanted to do it because I like landing, taking my train, having a little sandwich in my train to 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 central Tokyo. And I just did that. So I, I ended up flying Cathay Pacific. It was a, I found a very good deal. You throw Narita via, of course, Hong Kong. And as I hinted at earlier, what a pleasure it is to transfer at Hong Kong. It's so easy and just works. Yeah. It just works. Oh, my God. Uh, so I did that. That was a pretty fantastic flight. And I was able, because you mentioned it so many times to me, I was able to try the Cathay Pacific uh, lounge, the first class lounge at Ethro Terminal 3. Ah, uh, yes. What a nice lounge. Yes. What a nice lounge. Yeah, it is a pretty, is it? Has it been renovated recently? Yes, about a year uh, ago. Yeah, I can see that. It was, wow, blissful. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it's it's really good. And it's it's small, but you know, you've got the little restaurant area. And they've, of course, got the great views and the comfy seats where you can just sit out and oh, yeah, very comfy, actually, watch yeah. the world go by. And then, of course, you can go next door to the business class lounge and get some wonderful noodles. But uh, yeah. yeah, that's a great lounge. I've actually done that. I uh, went for the noodles, even though it was early in the morning. I said, oh, what the heck? Yeah, you know, why it's not? not early in the morning in Hong Kong and, or <laughs> Japan. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the, the funny thing is that uh, I arrived... Uh, to the lounge and you're welcomed by the the staff there and she tells me because she realizes probably she has something on my phone she says oh the wi-fi password will remember you that's how she said it which by the way is a very good thing that some of these airlines i know ba does the same we have a single password with a single sign-on system yeah. for all the lounges all, around the yeah world. it is clever and they put it in the app then you can access it offline it's a good idea so I flew the 777. It was very nice. Uh, on the way back, I flew from Haneda this time. <laughs> I said, okay, you know, it was closer. We flew actually the same day, but you flew uh, in, the morning, in the morning and I flew yeah. in the afternoon. Uh, my flight, of course, was slightly longer because I had a layover in, in Hong Kong. This time, a slightly longer layover, so I could actually spend some time at the pier, uh, which was, and you know, I went straight into the pier. I sat there for like, you know, maybe like two and a half hours. And then only I realized that one of my good friends, Joy Ito, was actually at the bridge. Oh, you're kidding. All that time, he was on, on Foursquare on Swarm, and I hadn't realized it. And of course, by the time I realized it, he had already uh, left Hong Kong airport. I was like, you know, so That's... so much automated, like I'm going to walk to the pier. There's yeah, no yeah. other option. <laughs> Did, what were the planes that got you from Hong Kong to Tokyo and back? Were they three 330s? Uh, no, they were uh, 777s uh, oh, as wow. well. Yep, they were 777s on both legs. Uh, similar seat, uh, you know, the, the one that is lie flat. So really no... Uh, 
no difference whatsoever. Probably slightly older, but when I say older, it's it's really funny because you go on their website and what is the new business class, which is the seat we always talk about. It is only like seven year old or something. It's not that that old actually, not at right? All. <laughs> not at all, and it's a very good seat. So what you know, I think yeah. they've they've tried to to make some modifications with the seat on the A three fifty, and they've been yeah, let which, down. Yeah, which I'm I'm going to come to because I wanted to fly back to Gatwick and not Heathrow because it's it was a very early arrival, five a.m. five thirty a.m. Uh, excuse me. Wow, there's less traffic and commute especially in the train. We take the train to central London from Gatwick to central London. Whereas when I land at those times, it has arrived many times for me uh, to Heathrow, both the Piccadilly, of course, the Heathrow Express, which I always avoid. And clearly the road is completely backed up. So that's why I was I wanted to fly to Gatwick. And thus I had the 350. And yeah, uh, let down is the word. I mean, no, I was not let down. Come on. It's very similar seats. Uh, same manufacturer, Zodiac. They had many problems and it shows the seat. You know, the 350s are not old planes. The seat was literally already falling apart. You can see that they had to put like some adhesive to kind of retain some of the fixtures. That's it was, bad. I mean, here I'm not complaining about Cathay Pacific because all the rest of the experiences, this is why I love to fly them, was really good. But they must be pissed. Yeah, have- well, they've said, they've, they've said it out loud that they are. And they're frustrated. I think they're not the only airline that's run into this as well with with the Zodiacs. It's really, I mean, the rest, you know, the IFE is better because it's more modern and more responsive. The screen, I think, is the same size, slightly bigger than the 777. So everything is, you can see that the plan is great. It's just that the execution, maybe because Zodiac was, you know, didn't have any capacity to build that many scenes and they kind of cut corners. You can see the results of cutting corners. And it's a bit sad because you're like, they probably, you know, of course, fix that. And, you know, Cathay Pacific will either refurbish for free or something, but it's still, it must be really disappointing. Infuriating because that's your sort of newest airplane in the fleet and people expect it to have the best seat. Anyway, I repeat that every single episode. I'm tall, you know, 6'5", 190, 6 centimeters. I usually test the limit of the seats. Uh, I was lucky because I chose to, to fly on two legs with a 350 and one, one of the long triple seventh with the bulkhead. And oh. I will say the bulkhead is better because there's more room for your uh, legs, especially there's more clearance as in uh, if you have, I'm also have very large feet. I'm like, I'm 46, which is what, 12. Uh, so when you, there's actually more clearance. So guys, if you're tall like me, you have, who have uh, big feet, uh, use the uh, use the bulkhead. But the one thing that, uh, that I will say, and maybe some people can either correct me or agree or disagree with me, it seems that the 350 seat is slightly larger than the 777. Uh, it's not as long, but it's slightly simpler. I have more space on the side. Oh, that's Guys, interesting. If you've flown it and if you found that, please let me know if you agree with me. One thing, uh, Alex, so coming back to Japan, uh, Haneda. How was your uh, experience at Haneda departing internationally with ANA? Yeah, it was fine. Pretty seamless. We we had access to, to one of the lounges, but didn't spend too much time in there. It's uh, yeah, it was fine. 
is there like a specific uh, access for directly to the lounge to the to the gate or something? No, no, right? no. There's actually two two lounges that w- that we could have accessed. And actually, when we checked in, the agent recommended that we go to one over the other because one gets very busy and the other doesn't, but it's just as good. And she was she was absolutely right. Yeah, I think I've done it. Uh, did you did you visit? I don't know if we've mentioned it in the international terminal. There is an observation deck. You can go on top and actually see planes. Have you no, we didn't. We didn't go there. We were. I, I don't know why we felt so rushed, but even though we had a couple of hours, we wanted to to eat. <laughs> I don't think we had any more filming to do, but for some reason, we didn't have a lot of time. <laughs> so, I guess if you are slightly ahead of time, go on the top. You have great views of the aprons, which, by the way, some of these views you can have for some of the lounges if you're lucky enough to have access to a lounge, like I did in the Cathay Pacific Lounge. Pretty new as well at the International is really good. There's also, just before you reach this observation, that you have flight simulators, but not for kids, actual flight simulators that you and me, I mean, they were full. There were people queuing for them, which is why I couldn't try them. But this is really cool. I had no idea how I missed all this stuff. (laughs) And one thing that I really appreciated on the observation desk, and a lot of geeks will will love that, is that you have touch screens. Probably they're also like, you know, waterproof because it's literally outside and you can learn about the airport obviously history this both in english and in 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 japanese i think maybe as well in in chinese and probably maybe in korean as well and um you can actually click on different tales and learn about each airline that you might see in front of you they even have all the 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 specs about the different aircraft you know triple sevens etc so this is really well done i'm so annoyed that i missed that I thought, you know, oh, let's just check it out. And I ended up spending 45 minutes there wow. until it started raining. And I said, okay, let's just go to my to my lounge. Kudos, other airports should do that kind of stuff. It's really, yeah. really, really nifty. So my adventure then, it, that's very Japanese. I'm going to try not to be um, too harsh here. So uh, did you use any type of fast track at Haneda for, for security? You know, the queue for the fast track was longer than the queue for the normal line. So... <laughs> I believe we had access, but we chose not to use it. And we just went through it straight through security and it was fast. <laughs> so there's there's two sides. Yeah, you can go, I think, I don't remember if it's called North and South, but you can choose. It's actually very well done. You have you have signs setting you where there's a m- most busy. I was in a very non-busy time, mm. uh, 4 p.m. or something. My flight was, I think, so probably was 2 p.m. And it was really quiet. And, you know... Walking there, the first thing that is in front of me is fast track, and you cannot miss the fast track because there's there's like like a carpet, a red carpet, and right. it's really like uh, showing your. And there's this huge sign, huge sign which has all the airlines yes. that are accepted and all the cards, and they they are printouts of each and every single card right? and the times. So, so I'm flying Cathay Pacific in business class, and I'm Emerald, so I'm, I'm BA Gold, so Emerald on uh, One World. Right, so I arrived there just because it's in front of me, and again, I'm, I don't care of, of not having fast track because at that point in time, it didn't change anything. It was just it was the first thing I saw. So, oh, let's use fast track, whatever. And so I show my ticket to the lady there, and she tells me, "No, you don't have access to fast track." And I look at her and said, "But it says here Cafe Pacific." And she says, yes, but Cafe Pacific Marco Polo. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm BA Gold. She says, yeah, and, and the BA Gold card is clearly laid out. But she says, yeah, but that's under BA. So you, it's the gold card for BA if you fly BA. But I'm like, so 
bronze card for BA can get fast track if they fly on BA, but gold card on BA if you fly any other airline, which for me was Cathay, is not allowed. He's like, no, you're not allowed. I'm like, what is that system? That doesn't make any sense. That sounds like she made a mistake. <laughs> no, I, again, this is why I don't want to be harsh. And I literally didn't care. I'm not like this kind of, oh, I belong here. So I like, I kind of, well, okay, whatever. And I just went to the other line. But I mean, <laughs> that was yeah, very that's, strange. That's strange. And I think when you have, because I saw that sign, I know exactly what sign you're talking about. And it is sort of, it is extraordinary how big it is and how complicated yeah. it is but that 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 seems quite um common in in japan to have um a very Explanations. yeah yeah, very, the, yeah. This, this like when i was researching some stuff for the uh whatever collective you want to use for the suica and the pasmo and Nakoka all over yeah, japan yeah. Yeah. their interoperability the the diagram is it's huge just huge and complicated <laughs> And all of that, so <laughs> that's that is funny though. But that that explains why you got all these, uh, also all these papers again. We we come back with what you said earlier. It's probably yeah. because they want to to have everything explained to you. What's the gate? What's your seat? What's you? Uh, by the way, the one thing I didn't mention earlier when we talked about that, the one thing I really appreciate about Japanese boarding passes is that they fit very neatly into your passport. Yeah, everything is the right size, which is yeah. totally you know what one would expect. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, so that not a big deal, but guys know that maybe it was a mistake. Maybe it was again a you know a policy that is badly designed. I don't know, but that's really funny because I know that a lot of people who are frequent flyer and much more <clears throat> asses than we are would have been infuriated. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I laughed it off and I said, okay, whatever. <laughs> but uh, one last thing, I'll uh, land in uh, Gatwick, of course, late uh, when we were in Hong Kong, we boarded pretty much on time. The captain comes on the PA says, well, they're making uh, works on the runway in Gatwick. They're not allowing anyone landing before 6 a.m. So we have to wait. So we had to wait yeah. 45 minutes. It's fine because you've waited. Were you boarded though? Yeah, boarded and seated. So that's fine. You know, that's what I'm saying. It's you, you wait in the plane at the gate in Hong Kong. The IFE was working already, although I would have had my iPad, so it's fine. But it's interesting. We arrive at Gatwick, I think the second flight that landed that day, so the airport is empty. And for any one of you who ever will arrive at Gatwick, uh, Terminal Cafe Pacific, is it the south or north? I think it's south. Uh, uh, the, yeah, I think uh, you're right. You, when you arrive from the gates, you know it's a pretty a long walk from the, all the gates to where you for border control for the UK border. The, then the 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 luggage uh, is pretty pretty close. But then there's a funny bit when there's a big square and you have a ramp that goes all around the building and people just go down and down and down and down because the sign says that's the way to immigration. Yeah. Right in front of you guys, there's a set of stairs. That cuts through all this. It gets you down in about 80% less of the yep. time that nobody takes because the sign doesn't say it is. So, guys, because you're smart like Alex is as well, <laughs> just use those stairs when you're yeah, right. You'll see. <laughs> it's, the, it's the most bizarre thing. <laughs> Everybody it, takes the ramp. Yeah. It, and we, we discovered this. I can't remember. We were coming back from it was my wife and my sons. And we were like, uh, why don't we just... Exactly. This way. And, and I thought, oh, well, we're probably going to end up somewhere where we shouldn't be. But um, no, you arrive right. I believe, I might be wrong. I believe, because maybe the sign was different back then. You remember we said at some point, like episode, like maybe two, almost a year and a half ago, that 
they realized that people were complaining of waiting for too long for the luggage. Maybe on purpose. Artificially. uh, Yeah. That's interesting. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, result is still, of course, my luggage... My, my luggage was fast track, you know, priority, whatever. I literally so I pass the passport e-gate, which works very well at Gatwick. I arrive at the bell. The bell starts working literally five seconds after I arrive. My luggage is number two. That was the oh, swiftest ever true. experience I had. That's Gatwick, a lovely thing. Gatwick can be super cool when it, when it's automation. When it actually works, it's really, really nice. Yeah, I like I mean. Gatwick. So since we are Gatwick, uh, you said actually that we should do that. Uh, I mentioned Gatwick in the last episode of Monarch that big bankruptcy. What happened there? Well, from what I understand, they have been circling the toilet, as it were, for a very, (laughs) very long time. I mean, we're talking maybe a decade, and it's just been a a really difficult situation for them. And then in maybe 18 months ago, the rumor mill started going into overdrive that they were really struggling, and it wasn't a day-by-day thing. And then on the 2nd of October of this year, they entered into what's called administration in the UK, but essentially bankruptcy protection and stopped flying immediately, which is quite unusual. A lot of airlines like Air Berlin kept flying for several weeks, if not months after after they go into bankruptcy protection. It was almost overnight. Doing so, they stranded 110,000 passengers abroad. And we covered this in previous episodes. It was the biggest civilian repatriation since the Berlin airlift, I think is what it was compared to. So it's really, really rather extraordinary. But it was an increasingly difficult competitive environment, pressure from a bunch of uh, other, well, basically BA. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Huge increases in capacity for low-cost carriers. I mean, EasyJet have felt this as well, but they're big enough to to, to really feel this. Um, a massive drop in travel to Egypt after, and the uh, and um, North basically in North Africa in general after some fairly high yeah, profile Tunisia, yeah, yeah, all these places, yeah. high profile terrorism attacks, and all of that was enough to really just break the back of the airline. And very quickly they it was a pretty big airline. I think it was number the fifth biggest airline in the UK or something. Yeah, I don't they know. had about pretty... thirty five airplanes, and you know. In 2014, they had 125 million pounds of new capital. Yeah, but from whom? Uh, Grable, who were this company that bought them. They're a turnaround specialist, and they made all this money available to them. But even they couldn't. Because there was there was there was this thing. I don't have it in front of me. There was this this story that Boeing, through a subsidiary, actually kind of helped yes, them. You know, they that's gave them true. a subsidy, that's which true. which by the way flies in the face of Boeing saying we hate subsidies. But I mean, that's another story. But so that 165 million in funding, which was required by Atoll to keep its license, the majority of that came via Boeing. I'm sure that we now that we know this happened, it's not unprecedented, but I've certainly no. never heard of that. And I wonder, I mean, they didn't fly they didn't fly exclusively Boeing airplanes. They only flew one Boeing airplane. I think there was at some point a plan to they had buy Boeing forty five. Exactly. exactly. That's the thing. Seven Max eight. So that's uh, the thing. I think that was probably against that that order that, that money came through. But the demise has been blamed on a bunch of stuff, like terrorism, like we talked about, a massive increase in capacity and low cost, and then, of course, Brexit. That doesn't help either. Brexit is more like an anticipatory event because it hasn't actually happened yet, but it's a, like a not a perfect storm, but a pretty good storm, actually, that happened to uh, – which is, like you said, a lot of people were stranded, and it uh, – because – 
and I think I mentioned twice already in this show. Sorry, guys, because I'm getting old, so I keep starting repeating myself. <laughs> the, uh, there were there were so many planes I could see at Gatwick. You know, when I was waiting at, I think it was when I was going to Tirana again that uh, BA lounge. You know, as views on the airport, I was like, "What is that aircraft? I've never seen that. What is that other aircraft?" There were like. You know, these charter airlines that I had never heard about, Titan Airways and others, which actually specialize in either, you know, very quick routes for charter holidays or for that kind of events. You yes. know, it's just, they, and it's insane the number of those that I'd never had seen. Yeah. Before. I think, I mean, we, I think we touched on Titan briefly. Yeah. They're the ones yeah. that could get, that could get a plane ready in under an hour. <laughs> Something like coming that, yeah. for, yeah. <laughs> Really rather extraordinary. I think it's funded by the taxpayer, which is fine, by the way, but I think it's uh, the Ethel Protection, right? Yeah, I think so, too. And the CAA were the ones that were coordinating everything. To their credit, they did a phenomenal job. So do you think it's uh, that's the reason why we're seeing the this increase in um, <laughs> the tax for passengers, the ADP, the airport no. departures? <laughs> it's opportunism. <laughs> I I said so. Yeah, uh, you, I, we're sorry. Very UK uh, based here for the last few minutes, guys. Uh, this is a tax that you pay. And I, th- I know that Alex railed against it, like probably twenty episodes ago. It's a tax that we have to pay as UK whenever you fly out from the UK. Basically, not when you are transiting, when you actually fly out from the yes. UK. Uh, and the the tax is dependent if you fly economy, business, and or first and short haul or long haul. There's distances, etc. And there's a new budget that was announced. Uh, We are experiencing a soon-to-happen Brexit. And I don't have anything to say about Brexit itself. But supposedly, Britain is open for business. We have to be super competitive. And then you raise taxes on flights. I mean, how does that make even sense? Yeah, it doesn't. It's it's completely ridiculous. And the reasons and and rationale that's put forward for its existence is nonsense. It was supposed to do... Uh, to offset the environmental impact of air travel. But it doesn't take into account the efficiency of the airplane. So airlines using old, inefficient airplanes are taxed at the same level that uh, you know a Dreamliner or an A350 is taxed, or a 747-400 and a um, prop plane. <laughs> it, 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 it doesn't make any sense. Uh, and Actually, it's been interesting to watch because in 2011, Continental threatened to stop flying from Belfast to Newark unless APD was dropped. So there is no uh, APD from Northern Ireland to a certain band of of destinations. Yeah, the whole thing is just insane. To be fair to to our Ministry of – what's his name? Hammond. Chancellor of the Exchequer, yeah. The to be fair, the the tax will not be moved for short haul economy, so it will not uh, touch like people that fly low cost, which are tourists, which are what they say, obviously what they assume are families and you know regular people. Again, not business people and people like us. Long haul will increase, short haul will not, and especially the biggest increase, of course, premium cabin, which will increase twice, will increase once, lex April, and again another time in April 2019. Not a lot of people do what we sometimes do, Alex, which is, oh, we're going to fly somewhere to catch another flight. But when you see that the price for a long-haul premium, second premium cabin, which, by the way, includes premium economy, right? Premium economy is considered something premium, is 150 British pounds. 
with 150 British pounds, you can go to Amsterdam, Paris, uh, Oslo with a low cost and then grab another aircraft. Not a lot of people would do that, but at some point it makes economical sense just yeah. to do it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, the frustrating thing is, is that Scotland have committed to abolishing it uh, eventually. They're reducing it by 50% uh, very soon, and they're going to abolish it as soon as it makes financial sense. And Northern Ireland are reviewing it as well. But in 2013, PwC did this huge study saying, if you abolish APD, you will get a massive shot in the arm for the British economy. And all these numbers are, are really rather impressive, but it's Which hasn't is happened. kind of required with Brexit. And again, I'm not picking a stance on Brexit here because every time we make a political stance, I have people actually flaming us. But, you know, we want to be competitive. Uh, you know, we should be. Anyway, enough about that. But still on Brexit, haha, I just said I'm not going to do politics, but <laughs> still uh, ownership, because we forgot to mention that the other time when we talked about ownership rule, you remember Berlin, we talked about the US, etc. So the ownership rule. There's a big problem here for the UK, obviously, is that IAG, which is uh, the parent company of BA, Welling, uh, Iberia, will, the day of Brexit, you know, let's, uh, sorry, let's, let me start a little bit ahead here. In order to be qualified and have flying rights in the EU, you have to be an EU-owned airline. So you have yes. to be 51%, I think, if it's 51% by EU shareholders, which currently is the case of IAG, thus BA, Iberia, etc. The day the UK exits, and that happens in March 2019, I think, or something, the day the UK exits the EU... All the shareholders that are based in the UK are requalified as non-EU shareholders. And so that can flip the number. And so suddenly IAG finds itself into a vast majority of its shareholders not being in the EU, loses all its landing rights in the EU, including for Iberia, by the way. Mm. <laughs> it will also happen uh, to EasyJet, but EasyJet already has yeah, made plans. Yeah, they've been says- preemptive. They will have actually a shareholder split of fifty-one forty-nine, so they'll be actually correct. But imagine for IAG and and uh, Ryanair, so O'Leary again, always very vocal, says that BA is in complete denial about that problem, and they say that oh, we're going to find a deal. But I mean, this is big it is because big. if if BA loses its its landing rights in the EU, that's a huge blow. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think they'll probably find a deal because the of course collective. Uh, economic impact across the EU would be pretty substantial. But to say oh, it'll be fine is is not a strategy. Oh. And, and O'Leary's own Ryanair will be at only 38% EU. So it will have to increase. And O'Leary basically said, well, you know what? You may be forced to sell shares or be disenfranchised because I have no choice but to make the airline EU compliant. So, wow. And there's going to be so many of these both within and without of the the airline industry, yeah, where people uh, haven't thought about shareholding and rights and shipping and customs and all that stuff. But I'm glad I don't have to solve that problem. <laughs> <laughs> so we did a massive investment. I mean, promised Alex Cruz after the big, you know, of course, the IT disaster we talked about. After I've been like being crucified in the press and BA, like yeah. anything but BA, Abba. There's even a video, uh, one of our listeners actually sent me the video, I'm sorry, I don't have your name in front of me, I promise you a shout out next time, uh, of, of him doing a, a speech about what BA will become. They're making a, a $6 billion 
uh, investment to overhaul the company. They want to become more premium again. So everything they apparently lost, they said, oh, we're going to go. So they're going back apparently to become premium. They're promising, of course, a new first class they had promised in the Dreamliners that are coming, new aircraft to be bought, Wi-Fi, which, by the way, I think only a single uh, <laughs> yeah. flight has Wi-Fi. They're bringing back the second meal for economies. You know, they, on, on long haul, they said that they would, the second meal wouldn't exist. Now they can bring it back. Do you think it's going to be enough? I don't know. I mean, I've, I've, in the last six months, I've been exposed to a lot more airlines and their, their, their economy and premium products. And it makes me realize how much BA has to do to catch up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but six billion, I don't, I don't really know where that's going to be invested or how it's going to be invested and how much of that is new airplanes and, and passenger experience. But what they say seems to be different from what they do. do. So the, you know, the, the shift in in how the boarding process is a reflection on that, I think. And then you know, we were talking about this just before we hit the record button that they are closing Open Skies. Yeah, <laughs> they're all business class carrier from from Paris to to, to Newark. To replace it with to replace level. it with thing. level. They're they're low cost carrier. So that's not a premium move. No, it's not. No, it's not. And <laughs> and that so that kind of proves my point a little bit that it's fine to say we're investing all this money in uh, in in we want to be premium again but their actions to date have not illustrated that I, I haven't experienced the new business class food that they've been talking about so i don't know how and i i have no long haul plans with them anyway for a while so i don't know but the proof will be in the pudding and there's no pudding yet <laughs> I love how when they announced, uh, they didn't announce that they're closing open skies. That, that's that's very, on the PR way, it's actually clever because they announced, so they wanted to open another hub for level. This is a long-haul, low-cost airline they've set up, guys. If you haven't, it's a few episodes back, we talked about it. Uh, and they said, we want to open a second hub in Europe. And the competition was between Rome and Paris, and they decided on Paris. So the whole announcement is about, oh, we decided to open Paris. And then in a very small lettering, they say, and it's going to replace Open Skies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, what? <laughs> it was a little cheeky. I mean, Open Skies was popular, and I think it uh, it spawned a couple of other imitators, one of which still exists, yeah. uh, which is great. And... So again, I, we'll, we'll have to see how this actually turns out and what that six billion turns into. But I have yet to be convinced personally. And again, guys, we know you know we live both in London, so we are very heavily uh, we see that airline very heavily. Thus, we talk a little bit more about it. We try to avoid not to talk about it in every single episode, which is why I waited for this news for this one. <laughs> yeah, I have six flights in the next two weeks with them, so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> all you all European, right? Yes, and both uh, club. Europe, it's called, and, and coach? Or mostly? Uh, uh, yeah, mixed bag. I mean, you'll talk about it. I mean, I've done quite a few. Uh, I don't always mention them because they're less interesting. Yeah. Uh, sometimes the destination airport can be, but, uh, and you just said Luxembourg. I had been to Luxembourg now a year and a half ago. We'll shoot actually, we'll do an episode about that airport and how that was because it's interesting. I took Lux Air myself when I went there. So let's ah, do that. One nice. Of these, uh, so um, Open Skies was leaving from Paris. I had uh, been to Paris. I mentioned that as well again in the in an early episode. I landed in Orly, uh, which is the second in the south, and took off from Charles de Gaulle because it had better times. I know, guys, I could 
take the Eurostar. Uh, it was a very last-minute flight. And when you do last-minute travel, Eurostar can be super expensive. It was also yes. midterm, so the holidays. So it was actually expensive. So it was better. And, you know, I love flying. Why not? Uh, yeah. So Charles de Gaulle. I arrive uh, with an Uber, I arrive at the airport, and I start moving into Terminal 2A, where British Airways flies from. And I start traveling there, and suddenly I see a massive amount of police and say, please evacuate the terminal, please evacuate the terminal. I'm like, oh, whoa, 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 what's going on? And I hear there's, you know, the usual abandoned luggage. Uh. Uh, so they have to, they had to, of course, physically remove the people. And I was on my way to security. So a little trick, guys, if it ever happens to you in Paris, if you are in 2A or vice versa in 2C, you can actually walk out and join the other terminal. The security is shared for most of the gates. So what I did, most people were standing and waited. I cheekily went outside, walked for like five minutes, entered to uh, C, which is the neighboring uh, terminal, which had no bomb scare, went to security, which was shared, which would have been the same as 2A and actually uh, was in the lounge, which I chose because I had many choices. I chose the Cafe Pacific Lounge in uh, in Paris. How was that? It is very, very, very good. There's a small noodle. It's not a, a full restaurant, but there's a small also noodle bar uh, you can order noodles from. Uh, the views, again, are great. You can see landings and takeoffs and a few aircrafts. It's, no, it's, Cafe is really good at maintaining a similar kind of feel over all their lounges. Yes, they are. Uh, I think they've made a concerted effort to do that. And I think they've got those flagship lounges in Hong Kong and they've they've built everything around there for just the brand consistency and the differentiation, which is a sensible strategy. One thing that is always bad at Charles de Gaulle, and I know we're, we've never done that airport yet because the day we're going to do it, we're going to bash it. So we have to be very careful. The, uh, the boards are rarely updated. So when you have a flight that is delayed, it just says delayed, but you have no idea of the time. You know, there's no expectations. So it was really funny to be in front of the gate at probably, I think it was a 1.35 p.m. flight. And you could clearly see that the inbound flight hadn't even arrived. And uh. they were like, boarding in 15 minutes you're like guys i mean anyway you know what happened actually so then the flight arrived slightly delayed but it's you know very short flight to london but the crew and that tells you a lot about Charles de gaulle we were late yeah. because the crew the replacement crew was backed up on the highway that leads to Charles de gaulle they couldn't make it on time that flipping airport and there's no there's like there's there's literally no good way to go to there yeah no no there is you don't have to be afraid and you have to have large luggages uh a motorcycle you have guys that take uh, you yeah. go in the back and if you have a carry-on they, they will actually struggle to carry on they are official right they're not just guys in the street they can of course uh you know overtake traffic i've done it once it's quite an experience these guys go fast and you're uh, you're in the open air i mean of course you have a helmet but this is the fastest way yeah i've, I've always been a huge fan of virgin limo bikes which or I think they're called limo bikes now that do something similar, but probably not at the scale that that did. That, that's the way. If you need to get from point A to point B. I didn't even know they had that in Paris. That's cool. Motocab, I don't remember the name. I'll find out one day we'll redo uh, Charles de Gaulle, but you can just look it up. It's a very good way to go there. Uh, as always, we had a lot of people, uh, you know, connecting, connecting with us, uh, putting us reviews. Thank you guys for your iTunes reviews or Facebook reviews. Always very much appreciated. We had a few, um, and I'm going to mention two in a row, uh, a few <laughs> nice comments. First was um, 
from uh, Stuart B at uh, Brookie Boy on uh, Twitter. Uh, he sent uh, us an interesting article from Forbes. So, you know, Forbes is like the off post. Any, can, pretty much anyone can actually write at, at Forbes. It's not what it used to be when you had to be qualified journalist to write there. Not to diss the author of the article, which is not Brookie Boy, by the way, he just sent us the article. But I want it's it's interesting to see the other side because in the last episode we mentioned that uh, how clever Airbus had been in buying uh, Bombardier's Sears series. Yes. Uh, this article takes the other side and says, you know what? Actually, uh, they effed up, and uh, Boeing is not furious. Boeing is uh, smirking because they know that the Bombardier factory in Alabama will take a long time to get in place, which means that until it actually gets in place, there's not going to be non-tariffs, so Delta will have to wait for it. It's aircrafts that when they open the, the factory in Alabama, they will have to shift jobs from Canada to the US, but Canada just having subsidized Bombardier in Canada wouldn't want to lose jobs, thus it will be a conundrum. Yeah. And, and also at the same time that Airbus is still waiting on, on its, uh, you know, the big fight they have at the World Trade Organization, that's where the author goes into a little bit of like, you know, you can see it's, and Brookie Boy says as much, it could be propaganda, which says, well, you know what, Airbus is going to lose at the WTO, so it has only problems coming after them with the 380 as well, uh, arriving at a dead end. So Boeing can smirk. This situation is just the most frustrating thing because it's completely manufactured. That's what kills me. It's a complicated subject. I think the article does a good job of of summarizing it if you know in a slightly convoluted manner but yeah it, it, it the whole situation just makes me angry and i was i was biting my tongue while you were saying that because we could be here for the rest of the afternoon <laughs> yeah absolutely but i don't want our listeners to feel that we always taking i mean we do take sides because we have our opinion but we see that there are other sides to the problem. It's not always as simple or something. No, it, it again, and I think that's why this article is important because it's not a black and white issue. There are a lot of – there's three countries involved at the very least and a lot of money plus two, whether they say they are or not subsidized you know, national companies or multinational in Airbus's cases. It's just – it's complicated and you're right. It's nuanced and it's not – it's not black and white by any stretch of the imagination. It's not uh, gold. And that's our friend Nick Donnelly on Twitter, at Nick Donnelly. <laughs> we haven't heard us. from Nick in a while, and he came out he with this gem <laughs> the other day. Call us out. Call us out. I've, I never had you guys down as Trump fans because we supposedly like gold. <laughs> because, uh, and yeah, well, maybe he has a point. Uh, not that we're Trump fans. I don't think we are. But about the gold, 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 because, you know, Trump is very much into gold. That Emirates first and New Emirates first is still too heavily into gold. Out of the pictures, I don't see it as much. But I haven't seen the products. So I, will, I, 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 I haven't seen it in person. And from the pictures, I can say it's less gold than the, yes. the existing first class. But that Nick was one of the reasons why I liked the new one, actually. Me too. Because it was less gold and wood veneer. <laughs> me too. Nick says marginal improvement from before, but still it's horrific. I mean, you know what? I'm He's not a sure man I, who no. doesn't mince his words. That's for sure. That's <laughs> why I like it when he gets in but touch. Me too. I love him. Anyway, so how was, because you've done it now, how was your Emirates? First, which is not a new product, but you've done finally Emirates first. How was the shower? How was Telos? It was great. It was uh, it was very impressive. It lived up to expectations entirely. Nice. I didn't have much time at all in the in the first lounge at Dubai, which I, I regret because I wanted to. Which 
Can you remember which uh, one was yes. it? Cook course A or B? It's, I, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, the reason I didn't have much time is because my flight was at 9.40 and I was coming from Sharjah, which is where everybody who works in Dubai lives. So the traffic was horrendous. It took mm-hmm. hours. Well, not hours. It took an hour when it should have taken <laughs> about 25 minutes. I went into the A wing lounge. Mm-hmm. And when I checked in, she said, okay, well, you're actually boarding from the B gates. Uh, but yeah, I would stay a... here if I was you. It only takes about fifteen minutes to get over there. The A one is the latest one. It's yeah. the better, the better one for me. That's what that's what this lady said. She said they're both amazing, but you're here. You might as well enjoy it. So I had a nice meal there. But the onboard experience itself is is extraordinary. I had a, a very nice Swiss flight attendant who was looking after me. I was in one A. Hey, oh, hold on, you told me she's. She was from Geneva. So yes. I am from Geneva. I never had someone from Geneva at any flight whatsoever in the world besides, of course, Swiss going to Geneva. <laughs> so I'm very jealous just for that. It was funny because not only there was that coincidence, but she also was from the town that we always stay in right now on the French side of Geneva whenever we go there, uh, which is a small town in Fernet Voltaire. Yeah. Fernet Voltaire. Yeah, yeah. I was sure. <laughs> Which I, which which was which was neat, but they come along and they offer you a glass of champagne and it's two thousand six Dom Perignon and like yeah. and then they've got they've got the little there's the big entertainment bar area at the back of the plane which is for anybody in a premium cabin, but at the front just in front of the stairs down to the lower deck there's this self service yeah. bar with again the Dom Perignon but then the most extraordinary wines and cognac whiskeys that's, and cognac that's and, NSC XO and all these yeah BSOP, yeah whatever. 21 yeah. year old scot blended scotch whiskeys and and also nifty very good sandwiches I know that it's not as fancy but I like the little yeah. sandwiches that they put they are very good actually yeah I was, always gain weight when I fly first oh, I mean I wanted to try everything the one like <laughs> a 17 year old bottle of French wines which I tried and the food was outstanding they it, it was uh, you know, presented in a in a uh, restaurant style folio menu, you you pick what you want to eat and when you want to eat it, and it was beautifully presented. And the screen, of course, is absolutely huge, absolutely <laughs> huge. And you've got this automated. I'm making a little mini attaché video when I finally get some time to edit it, but a little mini bar that pops out of your seat, motorized, of course. The one thing, the one thing, though, I mean, it's not here to criticize, but that you know, when I first did first, <laughs> uh, probably twenty twelve or something, anyway. So, and you know, I was so excited the first time, like probably you still are, that I didn't realize that these drinks are not refrigerated. No, that's true. Which is fine, by the way, because it's water. There's one I think was kind of Coke and kind of Sprite. There's a bottle. Uh, there's a Perrier, and I forgot. There's some, yeah, two Evian Perrier, couple of bottles of. A Pepsi, which I didn't go anywhere near, uh, <laughs> and like a cranberry <laughs> juice or something. And then you have a lovely little snack basket as well, don't yeah. you? And then yeah, a, yeah. A, a makeup mirror with all these cosmetics, and of course the the uh, the amenity kit is outstanding. And the pad, uh, you know, there's a little drawer the when pad. you have the oh, I meant to, pad. I meant to take that. Damn it, I forgot. I've never, <laughs> I've, I've actually never used the. The cosmetics that are there because they give you this amenity kit, which is already very good and extraordinary. And there's actually so much more. And we'll get there probably with you in a minute in the in the shower. No, I'm gonna not gonna go physically with you in the shower. <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> but uh, there's already there's already so much good things in the amenity kit. Plus, there is a lot of stuff in the the lavatory, which is more than a lavatory at that point. Which means that the, the, the cosmetics that is under that mirror 
I've never touched them. Not that I use cosmetics a lot, but I've never even thought about using booze. Yeah, I, I no, I didn't even break the seal, as it were, on any of that. It was it just stayed there. I think um, perhaps if I was of the fairer sex, I would. Um, yeah, maybe, but yeah. I don't like you say I don't wear makeup or cosmetics very often. But yeah, in the in the bathroom, which without exaggeration is bigger than the bathroom in my house, <laughs> you have all of these uh, uh, cosmetics and 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 accessories and things like that. Which is and of course the shower. Which did you did you take one then? Uh, yeah, I didn't even need one, but I felt I had yeah, to exactly for science. <laughs> and uh, it was a hot, powerful shower that lasted. Longer than I needed it to. Yeah, I never fit. I never went to the. This is twelve minutes of water, but that's water. Meaning, it, you, you see, every time you can, the water stops, yeah. so you don't have to keep it running. And I never actually did. You know, why would I do like stay two hours there? I mean, I don't know. It's just uh, the 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 floor is actually heated. Yes, I I did enjoy that. I did enjoy that. You get twenty five minutes in the bathroom. Like yeah. they book, they block it off for twenty five minutes, and yeah, yeah the. The TV and the that you can watch the TV and just everything. in the lavatory, yeah, in the lavatory, there's the ma- moving map, and yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, of course, it yeah, was yeah, just, yeah. it was just so impressive. <laughs> the whole experience, the, the bed, of course, was ex- just exquisite and and comfortable. And how was the food? Amazing. <laughs> yeah, I just I started with caviar just because it was there. And yeah, exactly. It was, it was <laughs> recommended to me by uh, the cabin crew who was looking after me, and uh, yeah, just just. Just everything attentive, wonderful, really, really good. I didn't, and I worked the whole flight because I had internet, so I could get. I got a lot of work done as well. Which um, yeah. So on on Emirates, uh, business and and first do not pay for the internet. Uh, right, you get unlimited. Unlimited, which of course then depends on which country. So some countries are blocked out. I think China and India, you cannot have internet when you fly over those. Maybe some, a few others, I don't remember. And the rest depends. Sometimes the quality is not as good depending on where you are. Yeah, and that's fine. Um, yeah, it's fine. I'm not criticizing. We're saying it's an expectation because yeah. I, I guess when you fly domestic in the US, not yet, but soon enough, domestic in Europe, you can expect to have a pretty good internet all throughout. Yes. There, there are some parts you're going over either oceans or you're going over, you know, uh, some countries that might not have the infrastructure yet. And they don't use satellites, I think, yet. Or I, so, it's, And, of course, you're also in a 380, which you have to share the connectivity with a lot Yeah, and they're good at indicating the saturation of the signal as yes. well. Yes, um, they are. But, but yeah. since you don't pay, you don't realize. By the way, it reminds me that <laughs> because it has happened to me recently. I think it was on a Cathay Pacific flight. Then uh, I would advise anyone that does that because I was so stupid, especially when you pay, because when you don't pay, you don't really care, to kill all the background activities uh, on your phone, yes. which is very easily done on an iPhone. I'm pretty sure it's easily done on Android. On Mac, I, which I have, I guys, I've installed something called Trip Mode, which also can kill a lot of background activities because literally, I think, again, I think it was uh, Cathay Pacific, I had bought 20 mega and it literally lasted for about 30 seconds because suddenly all iCloud and everything started going in the background and wow. used all my yeah. stuff. So. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's always a pain as well, especially if you're on one of the limited plans and that's it. They're like, you turn on your computer, ding, that's it. <laughs> all used up. <laughs> but the experience, the onboarding of um, experience of logging to Wi-Fi is very good. I found it's on, very on easy, especially if you are a uh, Emirates Skywards member. Oh, yeah, true. I forgot about that. Yeah, of course, if you are gold, you also do not pay for internet. 
Yeah, I think if you're just a member, because I was a blue member and I got it for, for yeah, free. but you went first. Uh, no, even first. on my on my business class oh. lights, yeah, yeah. But I think business and first do not pay. Anyway. Uh, I'm not that's... sure, guys. But anyway, it's good to be a. I think it's you know clever from them to ask you to become a member because then of course <laughs> they onboard you. So. I know, because I've heard a lot of friends of mine say Emirates, the internet doesn't always work yet because, again, it's not always throughout. But I think overall, it's one of the good experiences for long-haul flights that I had. Yeah. It's a, it's yeah, a solid. It's, I, I, was, I was impressed. Yeah. Uh, and how is uh, the chauffeur drive? Really impressive. I think um, very different in the UK compared to Dubai. In Dubai, it's, it's just, uh, you know an extraordinary scale at which they do it yeah, but it was very industrial efficient. yeah it's industrial, industrial is so the right many, word yeah, yeah. the right word but they were on time all four legs and i was kudos to la to, to heathrow and to, to emirates when i landed at heathrow i think i sent you a message that from wheels down to driving out of terminal three was like 22 minutes oh wow and it, that was even with my passport failing on the on the e-gate yeah. so that's pretty amazing how was your though? How was the immigration at Dubai for you? you uh, very there? easy because they give you the fast track, and although it wasn't really necessary, because we seemed to arrive at a reasonably quiet period in the day. Okay. Uh, it, yeah, it took no time at all. Okay, good. Um, I, I th- think pretty sure I'm going to Dubai again once time this year. Oh wow! <laughs> I'm back there in February, and I, I yeah. look forward to. It. I'm flying on Emirates. Yeah, I'm, I should be flying Emirates if I end up going because it's still up in the air. I might also go to uh, Abu Dhabi with Etihad the week before. It's a bit crazy to do that at the end of the year, but I might have no choice. We'll see if I if I go forward. But yeah, the, the Dubai can be sometimes very busy. And no matter if you have fast track, it can be actually busy. The ideal scenario would have to have your Skywards cards linked with your passport, and then you just swipe it. Problem is, I was never able. I think I've said it again many times. I was never able to register my passport yeah. on my card. But that would be the, the, the most fantastic way to get in, because then you get to a gate and you just don't talk to anyone. It's just yeah. in the country. That that would be the nice way to do it. And that's the same at any airport, though. So uh, one last thing. Uh, I know we're running back again since we don't know what we're going to record next because we have a few flights coming up. I'm I'm going to New York, and then again, like I just said, these other flights. I'm going to give you a little bit of extra content. We're recording today on. Tuesday, November 28th, uh, but this show won't be in the air uh, before uh, December, early December, so to gain time, we'll, we'll try to record whenever we can. So I'm going to give you two, a few more news before we go to the airport. We, we talked, obviously, about Emirates last uh, episode about the new order they gave of uh, Boeing aircrafts of the Dreamliner, which is very interesting. Uh, two things. One thing I didn't know, one thing I forgot. The one thing I forgot is that uh, our assessment we did last episode, thinking how clever they were to 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 get Dreamliners. The one thing we forgot to mention is that they're also moving in the 2020s, in the next decade, to Al Maktoum, the other airport, which will be massive, massive. They won't have as much of a capacity issue that they currently have at uh, Dubai International Export, DXP, which means it's perfect to have more point-to-point as well. That adds to our point about point-to-point strategy. Yeah, it is clever. They've been very, I mean, it's it's such a huge component of that region's um, economy that they really have had to think carefully about it. And they have, They, they obviously have. The, the long-range thinking is so impressive. Of course, you're also ordering a 777X or so 777 9s, etc. There was a picture, I don't know if you've seen it, of the engine 
that will be uh, put on this. So they're starting to test the engine. No, I they, haven't. <laughs> I don't have it in front of me. You have to look it up. They, they retrofitted the engine to transport it on a 747. It's so big. So it's the largest engine ever built. Uh, it's bigger than current engines with 777, which are already massive. And you can see, they had to put it slightly forward on the wing, you know, as number two engine on the 747, because it's so big that it would otherwise touch the ground. So it's slightly like uh, in front and uh, and leveled up in order to avoid touching the ground. I'll say, guys, I'll put the, the link in the show notes. I'll send you a picture, Alex. It's pretty impressive. Anyway, I said, it's one thing I forgot to mention that Al Maktoum, the one thing I didn't know, maybe you did, and, but we didn't mention either last time, is that when they made that announcement for Dreamliners, so the 787, the big order they did, actually, in the same room, the press release for 380s was ready. The media was invited. Airbus execs were in the room. The first dignitaries had arrived, and suddenly... There was confusion, like it happened, like, you know, big events where there's a wait. And suddenly they bring this cloth with an aircraft under it, which turned out not to be the 380, but turned out to be the Dreamliner with Emirates delivery. So, yeah. So, meaning two things. First, the discussion between Emirates and Airbus were about to say, we will order more 380s, which clearly didn't happen. But also, the, the way they did it is like... It's a power move on Airbus saying, you know what? You don't want to, you don't promise us anything. In front of you, we're going to actually order Dreamliner. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a pretty aggressive move. I rather like it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. But I mean, holy cow. Uh, I mean, it is a massive blow for Airbus already, but I mean, this is wow. And too bad for uh, John Leahy, you know, the, the, yeah. The legendary, because that was his last show. He's leaving. He's going to be replaced by um, Eric Schultz from Rolls-Royce. So he's yes. going to be the, the new the new um, head of uh, customer for Airbus. But I mean, anyway, that wow. I yeah, would have loved to be in the room it, just to see them. As a spectator, them. it's pretty amazing to watch. <laughs> and that's not even Al Baker doing that, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Since I just mentioned the 380, we talked to us all last episode about what's going to happen with the second market for the 380. So you mentioned yeah. that BA might actually buy some. We still there. There's no rumors. There's rumors still going around about that. But apparently, uh, there's a Portuguese company that's going to acquire two 380s. I fly. It's, that's the name of the company. They want to run this more of a charter leisure type of airline, and they say so. They're going to acquire two, and then the rest they will acquire seasonally so they only use seasonally so which tells you if a leasing company allows an airline to say we're just going to use your aircraft seasonally so probably for the summer with a lot of people enough for the rest of the year it means that they have really literally no one else to yeah. lease the plane to <laughs> yeah that's not very good <laughs> but more importantly uh, there's this company called amadeo which is a leasing company they are the the one of the companies that has made a bet on 380s back in the days and is leasing it to a lot of airlines in the world they don't know what to do with those aircrafts. And Amadeo, which, again, is a leasing company, it's not an airline, is thinking about launching its own airline. Ah, and that's Only interesting. with uh, 380s and next year. It's not going to be a full-fledged airline, but they're going to sell seats to other airlines. So they're going to be basically helping other airlines where they have capacity issues. Interesting. That we're, that we're even talking about this, I think, sums <laughs> up the secondary market for the A380. <laughs> yes, I love. I, I actually. Uh, what else? 
Yeah, we're going to go to the airport now. Uh, so Osaka International Airport, International yeah. Airport. Uh, international. It is an inter- international airport with no international flights. It is exclusively <laughs> domestic flights, uh, <laughs> which is, I, you know, it shows the ambition of it. It's actually quite a contentious airport. There's a lot of regional poli- mm-hmm. and local politicians that want to see it go away because they are wanting to expedite and increase the development of additional high-speed railway, including maglev. Yeah, because maglev is supposed to link Tokyo to Osaka and basically very close to the existing airport. That maglev will go at, what, 550 kilometers an hour or something? It was super fast. extraordinarily fast, fast, and it won't happen for a while. We're talking at least 15 years, but they don't want any more investment in this this quote-unquote international airport. So it's... It's not the most glamorous airport in the world, but it worked beautifully for us. We flew from there to uh, Kumamoto in Kyushu, southern Kyushu. The great thing about this airport is that it's a breeze to get to compared to Kansai, which is a long – it's in, sitting out in Osaka Bay and it takes a long time to get to. Osaka International, Itami, is 20 minutes from the center of Osaka. So an yeah. absolute joy to get to. What caught me and Greg by surprise is that we had check luggage and you have to queue up and put your bag through a screener before you go to a check-in desk, which took time actually, quite a long time. We had the same experience at Fukuoka as well. But not at Haneda, okay. which is interesting. So I wonder if it's only a domestic. No, thing. yeah, uh, no, because I mean, no, no, no. Back in my days, there was no such thing. I didn't fly to that airport, but other domestic air- airports that I've done in Japan, I don't remember this. Yeah, I'm not sure. It, it was both of our domestic flights. We had the same experience at different airports, but okay. you know, it, it took longer than we expected because we didn't expect it at all. But of course, it was handled with with wonderful Japanese efficiency. But actually, it's the third busiest airport in Japan. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> It was it was very it was very busy, obviously primarily with with JAL and ANA traffic. It seems like it's going through a pretty big and in fact a lot of the airports in Japan seem to be going through fairly substantial overhauls, Yatami included, and the facilities airside there weren't a lot, okay. but there, you know, there was enough to keep us. But then, then, then again, when you mentioned that people will board a plane in twenty minutes, with the efficiency that you can assume, you, there's not a lot of reason to be super early in the airport. Yeah, that's true, and and there's enough places where that you can get, you know, you can get takoyaki. There's a little takoyaki ah. stall there. <laughs> uh, there's a pork bun chain, and there's a, a ramen joint. But it's not like it's not like Kansai where you've got some really 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 good food but yeah it was it was fine it was a very easy experience like i said everybody boarded beautifully you had the scan your own boarding pass gates to get onto the airplane but of course you were assisted with that process yeah very politely uh very interesting i mean everywhere in the world now you have these automated more and more automation because it's always like someone right but interestingly because i landed at uh narita and i sorry we'll go back to itami guys in a minute now they also automated part of the immigration process there's actually machines but again the machines are there and for each machine there's an operator next to it yeah so you're like okay well okay fine but <laughs> yeah anyway it's, uh, it, it, absolutely that's kind of what it what it felt like but it's uh, yeah, it's it's a, it's a nice, efficient little airport. It was, it was the it was Itami Air Base for the longest yeah. time, and then it transitioned into. But it, the the runways aren't very long, and actually, it can't handle that many hourly 
flights only 18 per hour but that's not an operational restriction that's a political restriction well, like, i was about to say it's because it's close to the city you guys remember when we talked about episode 50 narita also kix don't remember which episode it was which is a nearby airport Every single airport in Japan seemed to have some type of convoluted political fight behind <laughs> yeah. it. The locals are like, this is going to make too much noise. Not that it doesn't happen anywhere else, but uh, like you said, I think they have very heavy restrictions on the number of flights, the capacity of those flights, the time of those flights, the speed at which you, of course, land for noise, etc., which makes it very not you know, great to expand as an airport. And I think that that's been the nub of this whole uh, political issue and it and it really is a cause of friction it's been it's been a cause of friction for 50 years and i think what they're planning on doing is to maintain the operational capacity in terms of how many flights per hour but actually limit the size of the airplanes as well that's also what led actually to the construction of kix which yes. is m- much more recent which is truly international but also very large and it's an island. It's a man-made island, which there's no such things as noise issues because there's no neighbors, basically. But there's still a fight. There's still there still are some politicians. Politicians in Japan, some of them are very uh, not only in Japan, come on everywhere. They're very keen to maintain because there's a little sense of pride of having an airport, and they don't want to see it die. And you still have some politicians in the region that, despite all of this, want to see an expansion of Itami or at least a non-reduction and are against some of the flights being diverted in the future to KIX, which is uh, part of the plan, because KIX is not a capacity at all. There are a lot of international flights, but not enough to kind of justify the size of it. And you could actually accommodate much more of domestic flights. But again, and like you said, there's no current real good rail link from KIX to Osaka proper. It takes Uh, ages. And and if you're flying 35 or 40 minutes from somewhere to somewhere within Japan, and then you've got to take an hour to get from the airport into Osaka itself, well, you're going to, you're not, you're not going to bother. And that's why I think this airport is important. And I, I understand where they're coming from with the, with the maglev, but that's not going to be operational for a long time. Some people say even 2050. So we're talking, and that's, you know, the earliest, you know, I'm probably going to be dead by the time this thing actually takes off, you know, and uh, no, it's not going to take off actually, because if it takes off, everybody dies in the train. I, I, I hope that they continue to, to operate because it was a nice, efficient airport to get through. Everybody was very charming. It had the old school flickerboard destination oh, guides, which was lovely. It was, you know, it, it, it was starting to show its age and you can understand now yeah. why that's yeah. happening. To be fair, because I don't think we mentioned it, it used to be an international airport. Yes. So there were international flights at some point. Of course, we're talking about a time in the 60s and before, basically, and a bit in the 70s, BA was going there, Korean Air was going there, Pan Am, oh, my fantastic Pan Am. Mm. Pan Am was going there, United was going there, and uh, Northwest as well, yeah. I think, and a few others were going there. So it was an actual, you know, because Osaka is the, is it the second largest city in, in Japan, I think? Third. Well, Yokohama? Uh, Kyoto. No, really? Oh, okay. So... I think the official name is still Osaka International Airport, but everybody calls it Lakitami, right? Yeah, it it and they make a a point of reinforcing the fact that it's uh, Osaka International Airport. <laughs> they do. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't know that. The 
There's one quirk, and you probably know about this as well. And to be frank, I found that on the Wikipedia page of that airport that I found fascinating. It was the fact that uh, because we talk sometimes in this uh, in this show about fifth freedom routes and how, for instance, between uh, Milan and New York, which I'm about to get to when I looked into it, and I didn't take Emirates. And <laughs> much earlier that we thought there was a fight there in that airport because uh, Northwest was uh, flying from the U.S to Osaka and then going to Australia. And Australians were kind of saying, hey, guys, you're kidding us? You're not actually flying Americans to Australia. You're stopping in Osaka. All the Americans pretty much are leaving and you boarding Japanese to come here. And it led to a big, big fight. The Americans were about to... uh, put some measures, uh, boycott measures against Qantas and uh, and ended up that, you know, they made an agreement. I think Norway's limited, artificially limited the number of Japanese that could board a plane in Osaka to Australia. <laughs> Actually, you know what? I was wrong about that. It, it is Yokohama. Oh, okay. okay. Tokyo, Yokohama, Osaka. Okay, because Yokohama... Uh, we have people listening to us from Japan. Hi, guys. And hi, by the way, our friends, you know, Shin, Chris, Steve, Joseph, all these guys are listening to us. I know Frankie. Um, and we have guys listening to us from Yokohama. But when you live there, it feels like, and you're going to hate me guys for saying that, that Yokohama is almost the same city as Tokyo because there's no, like, almost it doesn't stop. They're so big that they, like, they, they linked to each other. There's not like a, suddenly there's nothing and then another city starts. So for me, in my head, sometimes I always kind of, Consider Yokohama as part of Tokyo. Now everybody's going to hate me. Uh, <laughs> stop listening to this. I know they are two different cities, but you know, for the first time when you go there, you're like, "Oh, am I already in a new city?" Especially when you take the train and you see the the scenery. It doesn't stop having buildings. Yeah, there's right? nothing. Yeah, there's there's never not something. Exactly. Um, last thing about the airport for me, uh, and then I'm going to ask you if it was a good airport for later. <laughs> last thing about, uh, uh, for me, it's it's still baffling how many airports the Japanese have built, they are building. They are really way too many airports, probably local airports, again, maybe because of the pride. I understand what you said about the convenience because you have KIX, so the big one, which is a one-hour drive, a one-hour limousine bus, because again, there's no real proper rail, which is planned at some point, but there's none. So it's an hour drive, which is fine. I, I agree with you that it's maybe too long to go for a short-haul flight. But on the opposite side of the bay at KIX is Kobe <laughs> International yeah. Airport, UKS. <laughs> this, this is, so the government wanted to move the federal, there's no such thing federal, but the national government wanted to move, agreed to move most of the operation to KIX because of the fight you mentioned, the court cases and et cetera. So Kobe lost. Kobe couldn't actually create an airport. A politician Kobe said, okay, we're going to agree with KIX being built. And then they said, you know what? We're going to finance an airport anyway. So they yeah. have another man-made island, which is literally opposite of KIX, which is very small compared because it's like literally no flights. And that airport from Osaka is about 40 minutes by car and an hour and 20 minutes by train. So you have like these three airports next to each other and uh, they're fighting for capacity. And it's not, I mean, there are big cities, but at the end of the day, you know, <laughs> you, you know, I, I'd rather have one large, very big airport with very f- efficient links than having 25 airports yeah. next to each other. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> so was it a good airport for layover? Uh, I don't think it would be a great airport for a layover, but it was a joy to to transition through. I'll try it one day. I have to. Now that I've met Alex in the years after I've left Japan, I've become more of a plane guy than a train guy. And the next time I'm going to stay in Japan for a bit longer, I'm not going to use a Shinkansen. I'm going to fly all over the place like he does. <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, before we move uh, to the, our next flights, a quick uh, shout out to the guys at MyFlights. MyFlights is an app that's very similar to TripIt, etc., which I always find very good because it tracks directly your Amadeus booking. So it's very, very efficient. Sadly, the guys are closing it up on the 31st of December after almost 10 years of work. So guys, uh, hats off for having yeah. built this little thing that was really, really good. And it's due to the fact that Amadeus, out of uh, security reasons, is changing the way uh, bookings are being um tracked and a small startup uh, like uh, my flights cannot cope with uh, the workload so guys thank you so much and yeah. godspeed i hope you're going to do other stuff in the airline industry so what about you what are the, your next flights besides luxembourg tomorrow newcastle so an, a domestic flight on an a321 actually with um, oh wow with ba and then uh milan linate uh, oh the one that oh, okay so we'll do it one of these days then yeah i've been there before briefly but uh, yeah, no, I'm looking forward to to that. And I just want to give a shout out to my friends, Jack and Fran, who you're going to love this. They came down to celebrate Thanksgiving with us recently, and they drove down from around the Manchester area and listened to not one, but two Layovers episodes on the way down. Guys, that I love you. some dedication right there. I was <laughs> impressed. They actually found out my wife was pregnant by listening to the podcast. <laughs> so they... Yeah, they arrived and they were like, oh, you were serious. An <laughs> uh, apologies to our friend, uh, Graham uh, Kingshot. Uh, I hope I pronounced your name correctly. Uh, he said that I was talking way too fast in the previous episode. Yeah, I wanted to cram too many things. This time I tried to, to speak a bit uh, slower. My brain has something, um, an illness called brain vomit. I think about too much <laughs> many things at the same time and I speak super fast. So I'm really sorry. I'm going to be trying to not care about the clock that I see in front of me because it's a long episode again uh, and I try to talk a little bit uh, slower. As for me, uh, I'm flying with United. My God. I can't wait to hear about this. I'm I want it with... to be a pleasant surprise. Yeah, I mean, I'm flying business class. It's not the newest, newest, newest business class. Uh, it's been, I'll tell the story. You know what? I've been bashing, I'll admit, United a lot. And I said, you know, for once, I will, of course, again, it's going to be business class. I will test whether or not I'm going to be reaccommodated. Huh. <laughs> and as for the other flights, uh, the Middle East, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we'll record whenever we can. And until then, happy flying. Happy flying, guys. Happy flying, guys.